Consult is a monthly podcast about software developers who work on Apple platforms to create client products. Join us each month as we talk business, Swift, Objective-C, contracts, App Store, and all things Apple. I'm your host, David Kopeck. Welcome to the May 2016 episode of Consult. My guest this month is Saul Mora. I think most of you know him from the community, but if you don't, you're going to get to know him real well after this episode. We had a tremendous response to our episode last month, episode 10 with Aaron Hillegast. We gained a lot of new subscribers. It was our most listened to episode ever. For those of you that are new subscribers to the show, I just want to let you know that this is a monthly podcast. It's a reminder of that fact. So don't unsubscribe if you're not seeing us every week. And we've been getting some great feedback on Twitter and on iTunes and also some great recommendations on Overcast. If you want to help the show, leave us a review on iTunes, recommend an episode on Overcast, or let your friends know about the podcast as well. If you want to get in touch with me, my screen name on Twitter is at Dave Kopeck. It's D-A-V-E-K-O-P-E-C. I always love to get feedback from listeners and maybe even have suggestions about future guests on the show. Wow, we're almost at a year of consult. Next month will be our anniversary episode, and I have something special planned for that, so I hope you're all looking forward. But without further ado, let's get to our interview with Saul Mora. So my guest today is Saul Mora. Everyone in the community probably knows him. You know him from the great open source project Magical Record. Maybe you know him from his book Core Data by Tutorials. Or maybe you know him from NS Brief, one of the most popular uh, iOS developer podcasts over the years. And he's also been a consultant at Magical Panda. Um, his consulting company. So, Saul, thanks so much for coming on to the show. Hey, thanks, David. Thanks for having me on the show. So, Saul, take us back. How did you first get into computing uh, way back when you were a teenager or in your 20s or whenever it started for you? Well, originally, I think I was about uh, seven or eight years old. Um, my my father had, uh, uh, oh, oh, it was Santa Claus, actually, had uh, brought a uh, Commodore 64 uh, for uh, to the family for Christmas, and uh, back then, uh, you know, the Commodore sixty four didn't do a whole lot, and I just uh, remember getting a lot of the sample programs from the instruction manual, uh, trying to type those in, seeing what that would do, and then I was I was kind of getting a little bored because those those sample programs were, were fairly limited. Um, they did basic stuff like uh, print a few things on the screen, uh, change the screen colors to cycle them over the 16-color range that the, that the computer had or something like that. And uh, I wanted to get into more uh, advanced stuff, just really get to learn what it was really capable of. And uh, so after a while, we started buying those uh, computer magazines where we would actually have to take the source code from the magazine and type it ourselves manually. There was no like actual copy and paste download and, and uh, you know, run it into your IDE and, and just compile it to see if it works. No, this was, you know, brute force, uh, just, you know, handcrafted code, figuring out, uh, you know, making sure I typed it incorrectly. Uh, I think I learned a lot. Uh, I learned about typing, how to type really well back then. But, uh, you know, you, you spend, uh, you know, about an hour or so at least trying to type this program, uh, hoping that it did what it said it did in the, in the, in the article. And then it was really disheartening because after about an hour, hour and a half of all this typing, you get these strange things called syntax errors 
It's like, what the heck is a syntax error? What does that mean? Why doesn't it work? I typed it incorrectly. You know, this is a you know, seven or eight-year-old kid, you know, back in the 80s trying to figure out how computers worked. And, you know, you get these errors. Like, that didn't, that didn't tell me a whole lot. Hmm. But, uh, yeah, that was my introduction to, to programming on the computer, you know, just doing probably like a lot of people in the audience just messing with the Commodore 64 and trying to see what that did. Um, you know, as an, you know, in, in relation to that though, we also had an Atari 2600, uh, which is something that you see at uh, the Computer History Museum these days. Um, and actually, um, I think that the Computer History Museum in Mountain View has, uh, the, the game, uh, combat, uh, plugged into their, their, um, Atari 2600 on display. And that was a game that my brother and I used to play endlessly. Uh, combat was this kind of uh, a simulated tank game uh, where you were just trying to uh, shoot each other <laughs> off the screen. So you'd, be, you know, uh, I guess it would be kind of like wrestling, but with uh, little digital tanks, and you'd have to get each other out of the ring. And every time you did, you scored a point. And it was really funny because then uh, if you went out of the ring, uh, it would pop you back into the ring and it would spin you around like you got dizzy and disoriented and things. It was this really strange game and it had all these different um, kind of Coliseum-like configurations where you had to run through a maze and try to hide around your opponent and sneak around and stuff. It was it was super fun at the time. I mean, we're we're little kids, but that's... That's ultimately what got me really uh, interested in it, and then the Commodore 64 is what kind of helped me get get started and get going with it, and you know, learning BASIC and all that stuff. Uh, eventually, I saved up some money um, over uh, in high school by the, by then to get uh, my first computer. Uh, it was a uh, it was a Packard Bell something or other, and it was an Intel 486. It was just after the math coprocessors were were starting to be built into the uh, 486 CPUs. Hmm. So yeah, it was, a, it was a pretty big deal. I remember I think it was uh, Windows 311 or something, Windows for Workgroups. That was my, my, uh, my first computer. After that, you know, we just kind of kept going. You know, you get Windows 95, Windows 2000, Windows uh, XP, and then eventually I moved over to, uh, to Macs after, after several years of torture. <laughs> okay. When did you decide so, yeah. this is a career for me? This is I want to be a programmer. I want to be a software developer. Did you study computer science in college? Oh, man. I knew really early on. I, I don't even know how early it was. It was definitely around the time when I was uh, you know, on my Commodore 64. And later on, I also had an Amiga 500 with a, with a, a gnarly 24 BPS, uh, 2400 BPS modem. Uh, and I would dial into the local BBS. It was those kinds of things that really solidified my interest into into this whole world of computers and computing and programming and just that whole world in general. So it's it's been quite a while for me. Tell us about um, your first jobs in, in software development. Well, my first uh, real job in software development was actually an internship while I was in college. Uh, so I went to the University of Arizona in Tucson. Uh, I grew up in Tucson, and uh, uh, I majored in computer engineering. And uh, what was nice about uh, going to the university there is that there's a lot of uh, a lot of companies come to the university recruiting students, recruiting engineers, potential engineers, and uh, IBM was one of them. And it, it's it's uh, if you're from Tucson, you 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 might be familiar with the history of IBM in Tucson. 
they in the early 80s and actually my father had worked out there uh, in the printing division uh, just as like a kind of a, a factory worker and uh, the, IBM came out and built this huge huge site uh, way out on the on the east side of Tucson and uh, it was this huge manufacturing they built a lot of printers a whole lot of stuff they had like 20 some odd buildings it was a huge boon for the Tucson economy in the early 80s. I remember this. And uh, I remember how excited my dad was to get a job there. And uh, by the time I became uh, a college student at the university, um, IBM had left town. They left all of that interest in things. And the university had taken over the majority of that campus. Now, IBM still ran ran some business operations. I believe they still do. Uh, in that facility, but they've really pared it down to just a couple of buildings, and now the university uh, owns those buildings. So uh, through that partnership and through that connection, uh, I think somehow my resume made it to some people at uh, at IBM there, and I'd gotten an internship there. Uh, while I was there, um, I learned a lot about uh, just being, I guess, being the flunky, being the intern. Uh, interns were responsible for testing the product. Um, actually, the product that I worked on back in the, uh, I guess it's the late 90s now, uh, it was actually uh, cloud storage backups uh, way before there was a thing. So back then, uh, you know, it was still Netscape Navigator was the browser of choice. Sure. Uh, Internet Explorer was on maybe version 2. Um, you know, and these were early days of the interwebs, and uh, I feel like I was working on some of the future kinds of ideas, working on, you know, cloud storage backups before that was basically just a commoditized product these days with something like a uh, Amazon AWS, uh, you know, cloud backups or or whatever you know store you know cloud storage backup that you have these days. We, I was working on that, you know, almost twenty years ago. It's 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 always amazing when I think about this stuff. Wow! Wow! So. Um, how eventually did you get into the Cocoa community? Uh, how many years after that what was your first exposure to Mac development? Yeah, so I worked at IBM for several years. Uh, I went up to uh, move up to Colorado in Boulder, worked in an IBM Global Services for a few years. Uh, then after that, I, I moved uh, moved around a couple of places. I moved to Intel. All this time, I was still working on uh uh, .NET or Java or something else, Ruby on Rails. Uh, I was just trying to really find my home, my platform. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was getting along okay. You know, I would uh, try to learn what I could wherever I was, but it didn't really feel like like it was the place for me. I didn't. I don't know. After uh, when I was working on .NET uh, while at the Intel, while I was working at Intel, um, I joined a lot of the local .NET user groups and the meetups and started to get a sense of the community there. Uh, and that was really uh, a, a step up from where I was, just kind of working at the office and doing what I could there. But uh, it wasn't until uh, maybe 2006, I believe. It's hard to remember the time frames exactly. Uh, I was actually working at Intel at the time, and uh, Apple was already on my radar because they had, uh, not too long prior to that, moved uh, Mac OS to using Unix as its core foundation rather than the whatever it was, <laughs> the, the, the classic, classic operating Mac, system that it yeah. was before. Right. So since they had moved to Unix, you know, Apple was on my radar. And I had started to see a lot of those uh, PowerBook, the Titanium PowerBooks around. Yep. Um, I'd seen a few of those, uh, the, the whole Apple logo shining through the, the top of the, uh, the monitor. Um, that was definitely a, a nice calling sign 
uh, from way back in the day. So I'd noticed them and they'd been on my radar. And while I was working at Intel, uh, Apple had announced that uh, they had switched to Intel processors for their main CPU rather than IBM PowerPC. Right, the big uh, announcement. Sure. I remember uh, Paul Odolini coming on stage with Steve Jobs, and everyone was ooing and aahing. Uh, it, was, it was a big deal. Yeah, and it was kind of weird where he came out in that bunny suit with the wafer right. and the, all that stuff. Yeah, that was, uh, uh, for as, as kind of cheesy as that moment was, that was still a really big deal for uh, for Apple, but uh, it was also a big deal for Intel. Um, it, it was a really, I don't know, we were, everybody in, in, inside of Intel was actually very excited. And also, uh, I think, honestly, nobody knew. Uh, I think Apple, you know, is, is famous for their secrecy now. Uh, it's just, it's, it's just as secret when they're doing hardware. So, um, obviously Intel corporate cultures, you know, you have a need to know kinds of projects as well. So, so yeah, but that was a pretty big deal. And that's what got Apple back on my radar. And I think a few months after that, I was like, yeah, I think it's really time, time to, to look into these Apple things a little bit more. And, uh, I had bought my first, uh, MacBook Pro because they also renamed it to MacBooks by then. Right. Uh, so I bought a first, my first MacBook Pro, uh, by then. And I had, uh, I think it was on Tiger, OS 10.4, uh, Tiger. And, uh, yeah, it started, uh, you know, started with Xcode 3.1, I believe. And just like, thinking, wow, I should really just make an app. I had no reason, no, um, there was nothing that I could do on that Mac that I was, that I wasn't already doing for work. Everything on my work at the time was all on Windows. It was all .NET. I was all Visual Studio, all that stuff. And uh, I had no idea how to use this Mac. But I was thinking, well, I should learn how to make an app and make a Mac app. There was no, no even, there was no idea of an iPhone even at the time. So, uh, yeah, my, my initial dream, the initial <laughs> reason for doing all of this Mac stuff was to actually to make Mac apps back in the day. And did you end up releasing some apps? Uh, I did over the years, um, as far as, uh, purchasing a Mac app and kind of rebuilding it for something. Um, and I did make a few iPhone apps here or there, but eventually, um, I started getting into iOS consulting. Um, uh, so I think uh, maybe that's where we want to get to a little bit more focused. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so so how did that transition happen for you? So you're at Intel. You've gotten interested in Coco and, and the whole Mac community. Um, how do you go from, from the interest to eventually the consulting company? Yeah, so it was about that time that I went to WWC 2009 um, those were the days where I actually, it took me about a month before I decided to even go, um, because it was so expensive and also it didn't sell out in 30 seconds. Uh, you had the luxury of actually, uh, asking your boss or your manager or, <laughs> or even just consulting your personal savings account and seeing if you had the, the money to go. So, uh, so I, I went to WWDC and it was about that time that the company I worked for, uh, was, was going under. So, uh, I was kind of out of a job soon thereafter. And, uh, I had also at WWDC, uh, ran into, um, uh, ran into the guys from 360 iDev. I noticed their Twitters and they said, Hey, we're at WW, uh, contact us, us, co- contact us if you want to, um, come to our 360 iDev conference. So I was like, it was 200 bucks at the time. I'm like, all right, hey, I can spare 200 bucks. And, uh, you know, soon, soon after dub dub, you know, company closed. I was out of a job 
And uh, I was like, well, I've got this, I've got this, uh, 360 iDev ticket. I should, uh, I should just go. I already have everything set up, the hotel, the flight. It's already prearranged. I should just go. And it was there that I met some people, uh, some people in the early days of, of iOS fame. Um, and I also ran into some people from, uh, Willow Tree Software. Um, they, um, uh, they were looking for people to do some consulting. So I actually initially just started doing third-party consulting. So I was consulting for consultants <laughs> and just kind of working part-time. And uh, that worked out great because uh, it was really just kind of paid training for learning how to do this iOS stuff uh, in more detail. Um, I think a lot of my ex- experience with just programming in general with uh, Windows and .NET and just whatever I was doing before really helped me transition uh, to iOS a lot easier. So in 2010 already, you started NS Brief, and how did that all come about? I, I noticed in the first few episodes, and I've actually listened to every episode of NS Brief, believe it or not. Um, oh, wow. You, Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, you had some amazingly big names in the community, people like Rob Ryan, Justin Williams, Dave Wiskus. Um, how did you get the podcast started, and how did you get these uh, great guests on the show? Yeah, so uh, by 2009, um, one of the other influences for me was actually, I have to get, give credit to Scotty and Late Night Coco uh, sure. was definitely what got me really, really interested, super excited about, oh man, I really got to try out all this stuff that I'm hearing about on Late Night Coco. That was, that was the pivotal show for me um, to really get me going. And after a while, I was thinking, Wow, late night and Coco can't be all there is. Uh, and I was also on this really heavy podcast bent back then. I, I listened to every podcast that I could. And I still listen to tons of podcasts now. So it's, it's really been a, a primary source of information for me, uh, for, for many, many years. And I was just thinking, why don't I do one? I am independent. I have no job. I'm just working for, you know, the, the folks at Willow Tree and I should just do one. Um, and for one, it'll connect me, you know, I thought oh, shit, it'll connect me to the community. It'll help me meet people. I have, I don't know anybody in the community. I'll just talk to people and ask them and what better excuse to talk to people and ask for their, some advice or some knowledge than starting a podcast. So it really was basically the, the exact same motivation that Scotty had for starting late night Coco. He wanted to learn Coco and he wanted to meet everybody in the community. And so he just like had this podcast as an excuse. And, uh, that's really how it started. Uh, and after that, it still took me a while to actually get going. I had floated around, floated the idea around uh, a few people at the time. Uh, I was living in Phoenix, and uh, at that time, I was invited to a developer conference in San Diego. And a friend of mine uh, from Phoenix was there with me, and we were talking, and he was like, yeah, we should start a podcast. And if you listen to the first two episodes, it's actually, that's the dude, uh, Jade Mesco. And uh, he, we started it together, and we thought we would kind of do this thing as a as a joint venture. And uh, soon after the the second episode, I was like, "Hey, where are you?" He's like, "I'm pretty busy." I'm like, "Darn, I guess I have to do this on my own." So after that, I just started getting uh, getting my friends. So you know, I met Justin Williams at a conference, and a, a lot of the first few people, the first few episodes, if you noticed, they were just at 360 iDev. Yeah. Just like, hey, I want to do this podcast. Can you talk with me for five minutes? And I'll just put them all together and make a podcast. And then um, Dave Wiskus, I actually happened to work with him 
while I was working in Denver at the time I moved to Denver and worked with him at Double Encore. And, uh, you know, we worked together and I was like, hey, you're a cool designer and people seem to know you. Let's talk about stuff, designery stuff. And yeah, that episode, you know, we recorded at his apartment in Denver. And uh, yeah, it just, I got a real lucky meeting a lot of these people back in the day. And then after a while, I just started reaching out. You know, I was big on Twitter because I would follow everybody and see what was going on. So I would kind of eavesdrop. Oh, this these people are talking about this thing. I should talk to the person on Twitter. So I'd ping them on Twitter, say, hey, you want to do this podcast? And they're like, sure, yeah, what's up? And, and you know, we'd send everything in email and just get it going. And it was, it was really that easy to get going. But uh, it was really just the whole idea of getting started was kind of hard for me. It took me a few months to really actually go from like, I should do this to actually doing it. And, uh, you know, that first guest, Rob Ryan, mm -hmm. uh, I think back on him now. I'm like, man, that was huge to have Rob Ryan on as my first guest. Yeah. And, <laughs> really uh, was. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even know it at the time that it was like such a big deal. But, um, but you know, the, the whole reason that he was on there is we were coming up with a name for the podcast you know, we thought, you know, we we're trying to figure out what is this thing going to be called? I have no idea. And we we're thinking up weird names and kind of thinking, well, what is it actually going to do? It's going to talk about developer ideas and tools and tricks and tips and whatever. And, you know, it's going to be really short because we don't want to really do a whole a long podcast. So I was like, what's short? Well, brief is short. But, uh, and, and, you know, I was like, okay, well, if we use NS brief taking kind of this whole, you know, NS nomenclature, uh, theme. And so NS brief was kind of, well, it kind of sticks. It's kind of catchy. It's unique. It has the whole idea of being short and it's kind of a, you know, dual meaning of it's short, but it's also informing you. So it's got, it's, it's got all these things going forward in my mind. Like, this is a really good name. I should keep this. And then at the time, Rob Ryan was having his issues with briefs.app where it was rejected from the app store. And that was the whole topic for the first episode. So the whole reason that he was the first guest was that I had this name, NS Brief, <laughs> and I thought, this is too close to Brief.app. I should ask him for permission and see if it's okay. And uh, so I emailed him out of the blue, like, hey, I'm going to start this podcast. It's called NS Brief. Are you cool if I do this? Because I know it's really close to Brief.app and, and, and all that stuff. And he's like, Sure, yeah, whatever. And if you know Rob Ryan, he's like, you know, uh, if I look at his email now, I, I can I can totally hear his voice saying everything. He's like, sure, yeah, it's all right. Just, just you know, it's no problem, no big deal. So he answers back, and I'm like, I'm thinking in my mind, this is a good opportunity. The whole reason that I have to ask him is because of this this uh, this controversy. He should be the first guest. <laughs> so I ask him again. I send him another email. Hey, do you want to be a guest on this show? And he's like. Sure, yeah, whatever. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go do that. So that was it. It was really that simple. I'm like, wow, this is awesome. I can just ask people to be on the show and they'll answer and say, yes, this is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So, I've yeah, that with consult. It. Yeah. You know, so you, sometimes you send an email and you get a very positive response. And it's amazing um, to, to be able to pick the brains of other people who are so notable in the industry. Uh, how has that helped you, if at all, with your consulting career? Well, honestly, with consulting, it's helped almost nil. Okay. <laughs> you know, after I, after I went into more consulting, I thought, yeah, this would, this would really help be more of an advertising vehicle and just kind of get my name out there. 
Um, but it turns out uh, clients don't listen to developer kind of stuff so often. Right, so it yeah. didn't really, yeah, it didn't help in that regard so often. Um, but it did make a name for myself in the developer community. So uh, later on, when I started to meet more and more people, you know, I think people knew and understood some of my background, some of my expertise and experience. And uh, eventually, when I started doing more, I guess, third-party consulting, I'm not even sure what that is, um, if that's the official name or not. <laughs> but when I would con consult for consultants, um, you know, they would it would be a lot more helpful. I had name recognition with them. So in that regard, maybe it did help a little bit, but uh, it's it's helped more later on, actually. Maybe we'll get into that in a bit. But sure. as far as peer consulting, um, the developer podcast didn't really help so much. <laughs> okay, okay. So let's go back to your consulting career. So we were in the, about the 2009-2010 timeframe. Um, how did things expand for you? So yeah, I, I had my first few gigs with that uh, consulting for uh, Willow Tree, and uh, they gave me a couple of jobs. And one was this kind of this first project, this first major project was actually uh, this this database uh, app that I had to. I uh, it was using Core Data, and it was downloading data in JSON and converting it into objects and storing it in Core Data. And when you updated things, it was doing everything in the foreground. Uh, so you had this progress bar. And when you updated data, oh my gosh, it did take forever. There was no diffs. There was no uh, miniaturizing data. It was downloading everything raw. And it was taking 10 minutes uh, to import the data. It was only taking seconds to download the data. But to import it, oh my gosh, it was going through all the core data craziness. Um, and this was the first version of Core Data on iOS. And this is iOS 3.2, I believe, something like that. Um, it was using NS Fetch Results Controller, which at the time was super, super buggy. Um, Core Data was really, really slow. I mean, some people would argue it's still slow, but it was even slower back then. So yeah, there was all these things, and I and and the big feature that they wanted on this project was make this fast and not suck. <laughs> so. I got this code base. It was all core data. And uh, I had no idea what it was doing because, uh, you know, I had just come from Ruby on Rails and I was thinking core data would be much better than Active Record because it's all integrated. It's all a framework. It's got all this stuff that's that's uh, custom for iOS. And I get there and it's like, wow, there's a lot, a lot of code here. I have no idea what this stuff is doing. So I had to figure out all the core data stack, all that stuff, and really internalize the, the meaning of all that and also decipher what, what the actual code in that project was trying to do. It was very, very difficult because there was a lot of code that I had no idea. So uh, the first thing I had to do was kind of refactor some of that code. So I ended up refactoring a lot of um, a lot of the fetch requests for data and core data into helper methods. Uh, and then uh, I figured out what categories were in Objective-C and I started doing that into categories. And eventually, I had created the beginnings of my magical record framework from that project. Oh, wow. And, so uh, it, it really yeah, just, just segued right into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, I made kind of the beginnings of magical record from that project. And I thought, well, I'm a consultant now. I see a lot of other people throwing out this open source stuff and it's doing good things for them. Well, here's a thing that's pretty generic. It's helped me a lot figuring out how to fix this this project, which, by the way, I, I, I doubled 
the speed, so I made it uh, import stuff in five minutes in half the time. Eventually, I got it down to two minutes after a while, which was still a long time for me, but I, I really think there's now I could probably do it in, in a much less time. So, um, yeah, I, I, I had extracted this framework into something that was a little more usable. So I thought, well, I'll make this into a, a library and I'll put it out there on the open source interwebs. And, you know, I, I put it out on GitHub. And if you notice at the bottom, I have one line that says, if you like this library, you know, it comes from the magical panda, you know, where, you know, hire me for all your data importing and needs and all that stuff. So, you know, it was, it was really intended as some kind of advertising vehicle as, as a, as a show of my expertise. How did that um, work out? Uh, that didn't, it worked out a little bit, but it wasn't the great boon that I was hoping it would be. Um, I got a few gigs here or there, you know, um, Magical Record wasn't so popular right off the bat, actually. Um, it took a while, and it actually it took a blog post that I wrote for my friend uh, Matt Long at uh, Coco is My Girlfriend. Um, I wrote a, I, you know, I met Matt at a Coco Heads in Colorado Springs, and then I told him about this framework. He was having trouble with Coordinator. I was like, hey, I wrote this thing. You should totally use it. So I was like, well, what if I just write a blog post uh, with all the documentation, and then you can put it on your blog, and then everybody can can know about it too. So it's not just for you. And I was like, he's like, yeah, that's cool. So uh, so yeah, I I did that, and that's when Magical Records started to take off. And it was after that that um, it definitely got more than a hundred stars on GitHub. Um, right. We should and, tell uh, listeners that might not be aware of Magical Record. I think it's near like ten thousand stars. Right. It's 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 one of the oh most popular. Uh, Objective C frameworks on GitHub period. Objective C projects on on GitHub period. I think. Oh my god! I, last I checked, it was at eight thousand. I I was I was amazed when I got over one hundred. Honestly, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's you know, pop fame has its its downsides too when it comes to stuff like that. Um, but yeah, after that, after it became really really popular, uh, I got a few calls. I did some some work for some people in Finland. Um, did some work just around, just around the community a bit, uh, with core data stuff and magical record stuff and improving things. And, and when I wrote the, the data import library routines for, for core data, that really, uh, has been a big hit for that. So it's helped a little and it's helped with my fame, but uh, as far as consulting, it didn't help so much, which is maybe a little disappointing, but I don't know if that's expected. Yeah, uh, I, th- I think that's or maybe I didn't. I, I, I've heard that that story from other people with very popular open source cocoa projects that are also consultants. They haven't necessarily led to the kind of success in the consulting realm that you would expect. And I think it's similar to what you were saying earlier about NS Brief. The projects are not being used by clients; they're being used by other developers. So there's no direct uh, translation there, right? Yeah, I think that's in a sense, but you know, a lot of times it's for developers, it's what they're using in actual production apps. I think Magic Record is shipped in thousands of apps on the App Store. Mm-hmm. So even though like my my foot, personal footprint on the App Store uh is is very limited, you know, I've got a huge impact on the App Store myself anyway. Um and in that regard, I have uh developers that 
talk to me and ask questions and that also has a direct impact on their work and I talk to their they talk to their bosses about me and things like that so you know I've talked to Apple on a couple of occasions and they know who I am uh, the core data team knows who I am sure. <laughs> which is maybe a little scary right um, and, I, and I have talked to them on a couple of times um, but uh, you know it's 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 been good for my for my name for my name recognition and getting my name out there yeah. Um, but yeah, as far as, as money making and getting gigs, maybe not so much. You are but very active in the, 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 the fame isn't a bad thing though. It, it hasn't been bad to like get my name out there. Sure. And you, I was gonna say you are very active in the community. I mean, you're, you're all over the, the conference circuit speaking at seems like several conferences a year. How has that helped if at all with consulting? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm doing consulting wrong because I, you know, the 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 speaking gigs don't help as much uh, as far as consulting either. Um, and, and maybe I'm not putting two things together either because you know, I, having name recognition, I feel like it's a marketing thing. Like if you see something on a billboard, like you see a pack of Doritos or you see an ice cream cone on on a billboard, you're not going to go out and buy it right away. Right. Right. You're not going to say. I want Taco Bell because I saw that commercial with the, with the Chihuahua on it and it said, yo quiero Taco Bell. It, it, <laughs> it doesn't make me want Taco Bell right now. But right. you know that there's a Chihuahua dog and it wants Taco Bell and you see Taco Bell on the side of the road and for some reason you really want to make yourself sick and go eat there. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like that. All the stuff that I do I feel is like that. The bottom line is I have a lot of fun doing everything that I do. Uh, speaking at conferences, uh, doing the podcast, doing the open source. Uh, you know, if I don't get personal enjoyment out of a lot of this stuff, I don't do it. Um, so the, the podcast is definitely fun. The conference speaking is super fun. I, I love traveling. I love going to places. I love seeing new places, visiting new countries. Um, and I love meeting everybody there, which I also feel bad because a lot of times I don't remember who I meet. <laughs> <laughs> because I meet so many people. I really feel bad. If you're listening to this and you've met me at a conference and I forgot who you were, please don't take it personal. I don't not like you. <laughs> it's really just I meet so many people and if 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 I forget you, it's not for any reason then I can only hold so many names in my head. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sorry I keep interrupting you about the consulting career story we were in uh 2010 or 2011 now so so keep going if you will yeah consulting was going actually okay and uh you know i was doing this stuff for willow tree and then i, I actually I joined double encore for a while um and then went back to consulting so i've kind of been doing consulting and employment consulting and employment going back and forth a lot and uh, Double Encore became Possible Mobile a few years ago, so um, they're still around doing really, really big things. And um, uh, as far as the consulting went, I, I did okay for a while. Um, I had actually done one talk at a local meetup, uh, a Cocoa Heads in Boulder, Colorado, actually, and that's where uh, one client saw one of my talks, I had talked about the Objective-C runtime or something, and one client came up to me afterwards and said, he pitched this thing about a, a custom ebook reader that did some special things. I was like, 
hey, do you want to do this? I'm like, sure, why not? And, you know, I started doing that project. And that project served me well for quite a while, actually. That was my main gig for uh, about a year. And I hired a few few friends, and we worked on it together because it got bigger than what I could do on my own. And and that's where actually um, having extra having extra friends that can you can hire and, and hire on on a as need basis is really helpful. Uh, there was a part in the project where it was doing some stuff with some three D animations and touch gestures, and uh, another friend of mine was really good at this, and I, I just hired him to do just that because it was using all this core animation stuff that was using the the three D um, the three D animations and. Well, I could try it, and it would take me forever to do it. It was like, you're just so much faster at this, dude. <laughs> just help me out. So it was helpful to do that. But that's also where I kind of got my first taste of uh, kind of project management mm-hmm. and as also budget management and trying to figure out, do I have the budget for hiring my friends and hiring these people, even at kind of uh, third-party rates? Uh, can I afford this project? And that particular project... I really didn't make a whole lot of money after that. After I paid for my my own consultants, I made you know enough to get by. But really, it was just that it was so minimal, and it really gave, gave me a, a taste of kind of why I didn't like consulting. Mm-hmm. For one, I had to do all of the paperwork, all the books, all the finances, you know, handle all the income, track all the expenses, yeah. all the stuff that I really hate. <laughs> I really hate paperwork like that. I hate doing my taxes like everybody else. But this is like uh, an extra death upon taxes. <laughs> this right. is a really, really uh, a painful thing. You have to track all the expenses. You have to file all of your Schedule C paperwork. You have to do all this. Stuff. And granted, if you're efficient at it, you can probably streamline this, streamline this process. But I don't know. It's just it's not something that for me I prioritize so much because I prioritize the engineering, the actual work that I wanted to do. That was what I'm interested in. I wasn't interested in all this extra paperwork. Um, so th- more, that was co- sorry. It gets even more complicated <laughs> when you're when you're hiring people, right? When you have your own employees or subcontractors, the paperwork gets much worse. Well, right. Well, and 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 right. And and while I was trying to do a lot of the project itself, I was also doing project management and trying to say, well, um, you know, track your time, and you know, let's figure out how to how to architect this thing and uh you know trying to answer those those kind of um client to developer questions and, and making sure that the developers know what they're doing i was becoming that guy that talks to the engineers and talks to the clients you know i was becoming that guy and i wasn't enjoying that part and uh, so it wasn't as fun as it was just talking to the client directly and solving their problems and trying to fix things and do all the Cody stuff that I really enjoyed doing. So that's where I got my first taste of really not, not enjoying what I was doing with consulting. And this was, you mentioned a a long project, like a year and a half long single project. Is that right? Yeah, it was kind of on and off, you know, I would do it for a month or two and then it would be a two month break and they'd come back with more features. And so that cycle was also not very fun of, you know, on and off again. So over the course of the year, you know, I made, um, you know, I made a good amount of money, but it was kind of like a regular salary for a while because I would do things and build them, and you know, it was just a normal, it was just like employment uh, after a while, and that was also dangerous. I was thinking, well, I need to have more clients, 
Right. But the other thing that I realized is like, well, if I need more clients, I really need to go out and kind of, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, pit myself out a little bit more. Yeah. And while I'm good at kind of this personal marketing, you know, doing the podcasts and the open source and the conference speaking, pimping myself out to potential clients and people that would uh, potentially pay me for stuff. I wasn't so good at that, <laughs> that particular part. I don't know why I couldn't, uh, I couldn't do that either. So, you know, it was, it was starting to see kind of the writing on the wall for, for myself. Like maybe I'm not so good at this consulting thing. Maybe consulting isn't the thing for me. So uh, that's kind of why I started looking um, just for regular gigs, um, just full-time employment really. What, what happened next for you? So after a while, that, that big project ended. I started looking for, for gigs, and I found a gig at, uh, at Coursera in Mountain View and uh, just started working full-time and uh, working in the valley, getting the, the Silicon Valley bubble on me, I guess, <laughs> which was uh, a bit of an experience. So, yeah, that was a little, little strange. So tell us about the book Core Data by Tutorials. You'd obviously been involved with Core Data for quite a while with Magical Record. How did the book come about? Yeah, so it turns out, I guess, you know, maybe I'm not remembering everything correctly, but, but um, you know, being a uh, famous podcaster and a conference speaker maybe helped out with that particular connection. So if, you, if you've listened to the history of NS Brief and you go to the archives, uh, you'll remember that I interviewed Ray Wenderlich way back in the beginning, he was doing stuff with uh, Cocos 2D at the time, and he was doing his tutorials, and it was this was early on, and uh, so I asked him onto the podcast, and we talked about Cocos 2D, and, uh, you know, we just did an interview, and he was on the show, and that was that, and I guess he remembered me. <laughs> I guess, how do you forget being a guest on a show? <laughs> right, right, of course. But uh, so he remembered me, and uh, a number of years later, he had uh, approached me at 360 iDev about doing um, doing anything, something for his site, being a contributor, helping out with his uh, with his site, just because. Well, you know, he had a lot of people helping him, so I was like, "Oh, sure, I'll think about it, see what I can do." And then um, I think he approached me about the book that he was, you know, he wanted to do. He had he had an author. And he wanted some more, and he wanted me on there in particular because of my work with Magical Record and Core Data and stuff. So, so that was definitely positive. But it really just came about with uh, talking to him on the podcast and kind of recognizing him from, him from the community. And how has the experience been for you being an author? Has it been beneficial to your career at all? Um, have you got a lot of feedback from readers? Have you enjoyed it? Well, the process itself was kind of painful of writing the book. Uh, maybe it's just uh, bad time management on my part. I always feel like I have no time to write anything. Um, but as far as uh, the reception has been, I always get positive uh, reception. Uh, occasionally, I'll get people that say, oh, hey, I bought your book. I'm like, yes, awesome, and more, more, <laughs> more paying customers. <laughs> so... It's it's definitely uh, another one of those things that's helped my name recognition. And, uh, you know, to be fair, it's not my book. You know, I've, I've got three other co-authors. Sure. Um, and they did uh, a, quite a number of, of bits of that book. And, uh, you know, my part is uh, really just two chapters in that book. So um, actually what I'm really proud of in that book is 
as far as I know, it's the only book that I'm aware of that really significantly talks about core data migrations from start to finish. And, you know, that's definitely a piece of core data that's really poorly documented. Yeah. And it's, it's something that I've learned from really hard experience how things work. So uh, I'm actually really proud of that particular chapter mm-hmm. uh, and as far as its comp- contribution to the community at large. Thinking back over your consulting career, what would you say were the highlights and the lowlights um, of the whole experience? Well, the highlights of consulting is definitely the ability to um, work from anywhere, uh, which I really took full advantage of uh, over the time. And uh, people who listen to the podcast know that I, I started going to Europe on a regular basis. Uh, and, and my first foray into Europe was definitely an adventurous one. And uh, made a lot of friends there and made enough connections to be able to go back uh, on a regular basis. I don't even know how I did that now. It's, it's always amazing when I think about the doors that the consulting has opened in as far as giving me the freedom to go anywhere and do anything and try anything that I wanted that I deemed fit. It wasn't something that management told me I had to do. Um, I did it on my own and... You know, I, I've, I think personally, as, as a person and a developer, I've grown exponentially um, because of that particular piece of it. Financially, maybe not so much, but it's been definitely a huge personal gain uh, to, to be independent in that, in that regard. Tell us about what you're doing now. Yeah, so now, now is a crazy story. <laughs> so uh, I think we last left off with my career in Silicon Valley, um, yes. going uh, working with a couple of startups there. Coursera. Um, yeah, Coursera and, uh, and LoungeBuddy was uh, also the latest thing that I'd worked on. And uh, uh, I think it turns out that I'm not really fit for Silicon Valley. Um, I think my style, my the way that I do things, um, just the way that I think about code, the way that I write code, um, I don't think uh, it's the way that Silicon Valley works, which is a shame. <laughs> I think there's a lot of stuff that I can still learn from Silicon Valley, and I'm sure there's things that they can learn from me as well. But uh, it's not a fit, so um, I guess uh, we just had to part ways. So it turns out, uh, you know, the name of my company is called Magical Panda. Yeah. If you look at the logo, there's there's a little panda, but there's also a little character called uh, it's it's name it's uh, if you pronounce it in Chinese it's bang. Uh, it means awesome. It also means stick. <laughs> so it's an awesome stick, I guess. Mm-hmm. But uh, I've had an affinity for Chinese for quite a while. Actually, in in uh, in college, I studied Chinese for a year. I took calligraphy classes. Um, I've dabbled in it on and off over the years. I've always had an affinity. Um, so after Silicon Valley, I just thought, might as well just go to China and do something that I've wanted to do. And so I ended up spending a couple of months out here in China. Mm-hmm. I went to Beijing first. Uh, I had a friend, stayed with them for a while. And uh, yeah, so I stayed here for a couple of, uh, a couple of months. And I thought, what am I going to do? I should, I should stay here, learn the language, really uh, invest my time here because it's just a personal goal, another one of those personal things that I deem fit for myself. And uh, so I hang out here for a couple of months and I think, well, I should, I, I, you know, I started looking for a job and then it turned out, I came here like in December, the end of December after Christmas, 
It turned out early January in Beijing, there was the Swift, a Swift developer conference, Chinese developer conference in Beijing. So I thought, well, I'm here. I should go. Yeah. <laughs> Just being the conference brown noser that I am, I invited myself. But then I was thinking, oh crap, I gotta buy a ticket. So I searched frantically on their website and they say oh, they're sold out and they say, they say it in Chinese, so I have a hard time reading it in the first place. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, how am I gonna get in? And then I look at the speaker list and it's like, oh, it's it's Greg Hill and oh it's Chris Eidhoff is on there. Oh, I should ask them, hey guys, uh can you get me into this conference that you're at? And then they're like you're in Beijing? What the? <laughs> How are you here? <laughs> so I'm definitely surprised on their part. And then so this was like the day before the conference. And I'm talking to Greg and saying, hey, Greg, can you really get me into this thing? And then, uh, you know, later on, he's like, yeah, it's all taken care of. Don't worry. Just tell them you're a friend of me and, and you're fine. And so I show up the next day and I go to the table and there's a huge long line of people and, and uh, I get to the front and, you know, my name's not on the registration or something. I'm like, oh, crap, can I get in? <laughs> and uh, Greg comes in and, and the conference organizers come in. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, just come to the side here. You have a special ticket. Like, what? How did I get this? <laughs> so as it turns out that even there I'm a little famous. So they knew me and they let me in anyway. And I was like, and they, they have uh, in China – this app called WeChat is huge here. You do everything by WeChat here. Right. So they invite me to the to the WeChat group channel, and I'm showered with hellos. Like everybody's, hey, Saul, I I I love Magical Record. Uh, thanks for all your help. And they're saying all this stuff in Chinese. And I'm like, I don't know what you're saying. Luckily, there's a translate feature on WeChat, so I can read what they're saying. And it's like, it's it's all this stuff that's like just it's super amazing that it happened. And, you know, they had um, at the conference, they had uh, sponsors and they have people looking for developers. Uh, amazingly, China is like this parallel universe of the U.S. conferences. They have conferences here. They have sponsors and they have headhunters here looking for developers. And so they had some at the, at the fair, at the, the conference there. Um, I tried to talk to them. They weren't speaking much English, so I didn't really have the nerve to talk to them in, in my broken Chinese. And uh, it turns out that I started talking to people. I would just kind of, I went to some of the sessions, but they were mostly in Chinese. I went to Greg's and Chris's, which were in English. Um, so I, I started talking to people, to the ones that, that spoke English. Oh, and also, by the way, I was famous enough there that people took pictures with me, like, hey, it's the <laughs> developer of Magical Record. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is cra it's crazy. Uh, it, it's super fun when that happens. I'm just always super humbled when they do that. So, so yeah, it's a lot of fun. But um, so I started talking to people in hallways like I do in the conferences and just um, chatting. Eventually, I talk uh, to this dude named uh, Tang Chao. And coincidentally, he's a super famous developer in China. He has all these books and everywhere there, he's super famous. And while I'm talking to him everybody's taking picture of me talking to him or him talking to me, whoever, because we're both like super famous from, you know, his famous in China. I'm famous in the U S or wherever in the West. It's like, Oh my gosh, this is like really awkward. Wow. <laughs> so yeah, it was the super, super weird thing. So we, so we talk and we're just talking about uh, stuff, you know, kind of comparing notes. And afterwards I'm telling him, you know, I'm really looking for a job here. I really don't know how to get started. And he's like, 
why don't you write an introduction about yourself and I'll post it on my blog. And it's his blog is big in China, obviously. And he's also got like a WeChat official account with 30,000 subscribers. So his, anything that he posts will get out to a lot of people in China. And so, you know, he posts it, he translates it for me, which is like, Oh my God, this is super awesome. I should have like had somebody else translate it and paid them to translate it. But this dude is like super awesome. He, he, he takes the introduction that I wrote, translates it, puts it on his blog. I see it on the WeChat. The next day, I am bombarded with emails and pings. I'm also on Weibo, the Chinese Twitter. Uh-huh. I get, I go from three followers to um, uh, fifteen hundred followers in one wow. day. Wow! And uh, just bombarded with nonstop. Come work for us. Come work for Alibaba. Come work for Tencent. Come work for you know, all these super famous, ICE, all these super famous Chinese companies, Meituan, all of these things, they all ask me and, and, you know, big, small, everybody asks, you know, sends me an email. I feel like I got pinged by every single company in China, which is, it was craziness, pure craziness for two days. It took me that long to get through everything. How, how did you so, choose which one to ultimately work at? Uh... A lot. There's a lot of name recognition uh, on my part. Like, if you know, I, I don't want to go work for a shady company, I was also wary of startups again. Mm-hmm. Um, just based on my experience in Silicon Valley, I didn't want to um, kind of go into that. Um, I was also trying to not be like the token iOS engineer from America. Right. Um, <laughs> so I was trying <laughs> yeah. to not do that. Um, I was also trying to be with a company that had some experienced people, so I wasn't being purely relied on experience as an experienced person um, just because, you know, I still want to spend my time doing actual work. Um, so I was trying to balance like all of these thoughts in my head, like where do I want to go? And so the, the, the weed out process was really just like, okay. Um, I also got some advice. Like you, you should really ask for this minimum amount of salary because otherwise they're not serious. They're just kind of messing with you. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, try to use some of that. And also just to be able to live comfortably in China, um, you know, there's there's a certain minimum salary that you want want to sure. look for. So there's all these things that, that I'm looking for, and it's, it's really, really hard. So um, I ended up kind of looking at some of the bigger players, just like, okay, maybe playing it safe was maybe a good thing to do. They can pay more. I can be comfortable. I don't have to, like, go headfirst into this startup and go to this really crazy world where I really have to learn Chinese and I have to learn their product. and all this stuff at the same time, which is almost impossible to do. Yeah. So I, I play it safe, look for a company where they speak mostly, or at least most people can speak English, even if it's broken. Um, and we can communicate and I can do my work and things like that. So I look at, at um, uh, a couple of those companies. I fly out to Guangzhou, I fly to Shanghai, um, go interview for a couple of places. I end up taking a, a job at uh, a company in Shanghai. It's called Liu Li Shuo. It's uh, it's literally named uh, Fluent Says or Flu- Speak Fluently, and uh, it's an app that helps Chinese speakers learn English by practicing English and recognizing how well you actually speak the English. So it's kind of an automated way to practice your English. Does uh, working on it help you with the reverse learning Chinese? Sadly, they don't have the app in reverse. Okay. <laughs> 
And I had asked for that at the very, that was the very first thing. I was like, do you have this in Chinese? Right. <laughs> and they're like, no. <laughs> like, duh. So but it turns out, uh, just real quick before you get to your next question, uh, it turns out that the English learning market in China is huge. Hmm. It's, it's, it's billions of yuan. It's, it's a massive market. There's many, many companies that, that teach English. And actually, if you want to come to China, the most common way for an American uh, or any Western person to come to China is to teach English as a foreign teacher. It's the most common way to do it. Um, so I, I obviously took a di different path, but it's also similar in a way, <laughs> yeah. kind of a little way around it. Yeah, that's, that's funny. That's interesting. A lot of people are aware that there's a significant iOS community in China, but they don't know very much about it. One example I've seen on GitHub is a lot of the top trending projects in the Objective-C category will be from China, but not in the Swift category. Can you tell us just a little bit more about what the iOS and Cocoa community is like in China? Oh, I beg to differ. I think the uh, Swift language itself is being really huge in China. Uh, and actually, the app that I work on now has a, a lot of Swift. They've been using Swift since day one. So there's a lot of actually legacy Swift in there now. And uh, that's becoming a bit of a problem, but uh, you know, technical details. We'll get to those later. <laughs> but uh, as far as uh, iOS development development in China, it's pretty large. There are a lot of developers here in China, and I think it's very reflective of the U.S. You know, if you go to a meetup, any meetup in the U.S., you might get you know thirty, twenty, thirty developers there. Uh, in Shanghai, we have the Shanghai Cocoa Heads. And it's about 20 to 30 developers here. And there's actually a lot more developers in China uh, or in Shanghai than just 20 or 30. So it's definitely very similar. Although Shanghai is a huge, huge city. It's like 24 million or something. This place is massive. Wow. It's a, it's a huge place. I live on the 33rd floor, by the way, which is really amazing for me. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so there's definitely a lot of developers here, and there's a lot of smart developers. I actually, if you used uh, a library called Swifty JSON, we used this mm -hmm. at uh, at Coursera for some of our parsing stuff. That was written by a guy in China at ThoughtWorks, and uh, he lives in Chengdu, uh, home of the pandas, actually. And uh, you know, he wrote that, and I met him at the, the Swift conference in uh, in Beijing. So yeah, it's there's a lot of good stuff coming out here, and I, and the more I'm here, the more and more stuff that I see. So um, I think uh, you, you know I've noticed you know China's been on my radar for a number of reasons over the years, definitely personally, but also professionally. Uh, it's it's been growing as far as what I see from the podcast and some of the statistics of where people view the content from. The U.S. is definitely number one, but number two has always been China. And, uh, you know, so it's definitely been on my radar and maybe it's a good thing that I'm here to kind of meet everybody and everybody gets to know me a bit better. And, you know, I can talk to them on a, you know, more granular personal level and, uh, really help them not be afraid of their English. Cause that's the one thing I find is so many people here are, uh, embarrassed by their English when I'm like, you know, we all know that your English is not your first language but you can speak well enough to get your point across. And, you know, as long as you can do that, you're fine, which uh, is something I need to keep in mind when I'm speaking Chinese. Actually. Right, right. Yeah, it's definitely a two-way street. So is there any difference in how developers approach iOS projects from a technical perspective in China versus how they're typically 
approached in the U.S. And what I'm thinking is maybe differences around um, agile versus waterfall or different, more cultural, the culture of software development. Have you noticed any significant differences? Well, I've only been in uh, one one project so far, and it's kind of, uh, I wouldn't say it's, it's not waterfall and it's not agile. It's what they want, <laughs> honestly. You know, they, you know, they can read English uh, for the most part, um, and they understand what agile is, and they try to take some of those ideas, and they have a stand-up, but it's not every day, and they have... You know, we have a planning board, but it's not really, the team is not really involved in it. So there's not a whole lot of things that I would consider kind of more of the XP style of, of Agile, which I'm more of a fan of XP because that's definitely got more, um, it's more descriptive and more explicit about the things that you need to do to be successful uh, rather than a lot of people just take Agile on its surface and think they can pick and choose and be successful. Um, if you're just getting started with Agile in general, XP is definitely a better starting point than, not, than Scrum. But that point aside, um, they've kind of picked and chosen the things that they want to, to use to get things done. And... One thing that I've heard from kind of the Chinese way of working is they work long hours. The one thing that you'll notice in China, if you ever come here, there's a lot of people here, <laughs> which you might know by having, you know, 1.3 billion people on the planet and Shanghai has something around 20 million people in this city. There's a lot of people here sure. and a lot of problems they solve by brute force, mm-hmm. but the weird thing is, I think I, I get the feeling that they want to solve technology with brute force as well. They want to just throw more people at it. But I think they're figuring out that the mythical man month is actually a real thing. And they're only figuring that out by experience and trying to throw more people at it. And also the fact is they can't find enough people to actually throw at these problems here. That's the, you know, that's one of the main reasons not, you know, can you know my fame aside whatever notoriety i have aside um they just can't find enough developers to hire for a lot of these projects i mean even now we're hiring so if you're wanting to come to china and work with me at an app uh, in shanghai and get a work visa and do all this stuff in china we're hiring <laughs> just like america it's 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 very similar but they just don't have enough people to actually throw at these problems sometimes. Well, before we wrap up, I want to ask you about your thoughts on the Cocoa community as a whole right now. How do you see things evolving over the next year? Do you have any expectations for WWDC? Uh, how do you feel about the Swift transition at this point? Just your, your general thoughts on, on Apple platforms right now and developing on them. Oh man, so I'm I'm an objective C neckbeard. <laughs> so I uh I I you know it's funny, I, I I like Objective C and actually I've I've even added new Objective C code recently to the project and uh to write a new feature. So I, I, I would say Objective C is not dead yet. Um but it doesn't mean I don't embrace Swift. If you've noticed a lot of my uh, recent conference talks are about Swift. I definitely yep. learn as much as I can about it. 
I, I just think that uh, we shouldn't throw out Objective C just yet. Its, it's, uh, it's days are not are numbered, but you know there's still I think if, uh, enough days ahead of it that it's still viable for for certain problems. Um, but that being said, as far as my expectations, you know, I've actually you, you said that I'm I'm pretty active in the community and getting out there a lot. I've actually tried to take a bit of a break over the last several months and kind of. Uh, lay lay a little bit low. I you know definitely Twitter is just harder to get to from China, but <laughs> because of the whole Great Firewall thing, yeah, which is a yeah. big pain in the butt. <laughs> um, but um, I've really just tried to lay a little bit low and not do so many things on the conference circuit, just to try to. I don't know. I think it's really gaining my own personal sense of of who am I. I mean, it's been it's. I think being out there in the community. It maybe makes you, I wouldn't say jaded, but just gives you a different sense of yourself that's not yourself. It's like you belong to the community, so you have to serve, and you're out there just doing all these things for others, but not for yourself. And, you know, I've tried, I've been trying to gain my own motivation back again, actually, by coming out here and uh, kind of getting excited about everything again. It wasn't like I was, was not excited before, but just you get a little exhausted from doing everything sometimes. And uh, personally, I've been trying to stay away from a lot of that. Um, still doing meetups, trying to get my podcast back going again. Uh, I kind of consider this my, <laughs> I guess, my announcement of like, I'm coming back, everybody. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not dead. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm still, still going to be active, but just trying to regain my foothold in the things. Um, but with that, man, it, you know, as far as dub dub goes, I wish I was going, um, you, you know, I always tell myself, man, I should just not go and be happy with being here. And now, now it's a month away. I'm like, oh, I wish I was going to San Francisco for, <laughs> just to be around going to AltConf, doing something there. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think the community is, as far as I can tell is, is doing well, you know, things are are going well. Things are as far as like the app store, the reviews, the review times are much faster. The community response has been great regarding that. And uh, just things are, are really, it's really weird though. The, the, the state of iOS development and Mac development is this is a mature platform. This platform has been around for, oh my gosh, six to seven years now. You know, we're, we might be on iOS nine, but it's still seven years uh, since it's been out. It's I'd say eight, this platform eight years. Eight. Yeah. Okay, great. Even longer. Yeah. Right. It's been out for a long, long time, and that's pretty pretty mature. I mean, if you remember, like when we went from iPhone OS one to iPhone OS two, huge leap in capabilities. Yeah. And two to three, we had huge SDK announcements, and we get to like five and six you know the last huge sdk announcement that i remember is ios 4 when we got blocks that was huge yeah and maybe the 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 not the last the, the last one that's equivalent to that level of hugeness was when swift was announced with ios 7 right yeah and, and the whole flat design well, i don't even know what the name of that just just the new ui design that was huge and uh you know, iOS 8 and even iOS 9, not, I don't know, it's, it doesn't, 
I don't feel that sense of hugeness to it that, that those plat- those releases had. Um, but we might be due for something in another, another release. If it's not this release, then the, the, the release after that, you know, but the, the, the ecosystem is healthy. It's thriving. Um, it's a little sad that iPhone sales have dropped yeah. this last quarter. Um, that might be an indicator. That might not be. It might be a blip on the radar. But it is the first time that has happened in the in the history of iPhone sales. Yeah. Um, you know, iPad sales are not doing so great either. So you know, it's, I look at all these things as far as indicators of how mature Apple is and how mature the platform is, and um, really just trying to make sure that this is. I'm doing this because I just enjoy the platform and, and really, I don't know, I do it because I enjoy it and I know what I'm doing and, and I keep doing it because I like being the master, <laughs> being at least a master of something. Right, right. <laughs> I like to try to know what I'm doing and, uh, and, and I kind of stick around for that. But as far as what's coming up, I, I really obviously don't know and I have no predictions just because... I've taken the last few months to take a time out and not try to think about it so much and really just try to focus on myself, which is, I think, important from time to time. Uh, being a public figure, you get burned out sometimes. Right. So, right. Um, you, yeah. you did mention that you're going to be bringing NS Brief back. Just briefly, tell us a little bit about that. I, Janie Clayton joined you as a co-host last year, right? Um, and there's been a little hiatus, I think, of about six months or so since the last episode, but... Um, you post on the website 2016 new episodes coming so just tell us a little bit about that oh yeah that's awesome <laughs> so yeah I've been uh, so uh, part of the hiatus has been technical issues um, uh, being a developer I really always want to develop my own app to make the website and to make other things uh, related to the website so um, I have yet to scratch that itch and it's really just like okay fine I'm just going to find another tool that actually works and make it make my website. So uh, there's some technical issues behind that, but also again, just this personal issue of you know taking some time off and, and regrouping. Sure. Uh, Janie has kind of had to do the same thing. Uh, she's been going through some issues as well. Um, she's always going to be invited as a host on the show uh, whenever she wants to return. But um, I, you know, and this brief is my I guess my gift to the community. And uh, I want to keep uh, contributing to the community as much as long as I can. And uh, you know, when it ends, I'm going to be explicit about that. I will say goodbye. The podcast is over, and farewell. And uh, thanks for all the fish, right? And uh, I I'll be explicit about that. And uh, you know, I've also thought about that many times. But I'm like, nope. I still want to keep doing it. I still have a lot of fun. I still meet a lot of super interesting people that everybody else needs to hear about and hear from. So um, it's still going to keep going. Um, but as far as what's in store, I have a few ideas. Uh, my my thing about NS Brief, really, the, the thing I guess I've always had internally is that this is a podcast for the community, and I'm just a steward. The fact that I'm the host is inconsequential to the fact that it's a community podcast. And I really want to be the steward to guide it more in that direction. So I'm really trying to think and brainstorm about more ways to get more community involvement and not just me be the focused. I just want to be the steward Mm -hmm. and to help carry it forward. I really want this to be self-sustaining. So I'm really thinking that direction. So a couple of things that I'm actually doing 
is open sourcing all of whatever stuff that I'm doing from the website to whatever app that I'm making to whatever stuff uh, I publish open source. So I've actually created a organization on GitHub. It's uh, if you go to github.com slash NSBrief, uh, there should be one there now. And uh, the website is there and the new version of it is there. And uh, shortly I'm going to be organizing and posting uh, a contributions page and a wiki uh, so that what I want to do also is put community contributions there. So anything from maybe a guest episode or something on the level of that to um, having more technical articles, more blog posts from the community, uh, things like that. Much more community-oriented that way than, than just doing it myself. So um, I'm, I'm really community-oriented and community-focused and making it go uh, this direction and having everything on GitHub open source. I think really solidifies that for me in my mind and hopefully opens that up to more more people uh, around the world and not just in in the US or Europe. And also my presence in China hopefully will open up the community in Asia to the rest of the world because I feel like there's definitely a disconnect. You know, a lot of my listeners and yours as well uh, are in the US and I also see People uh, grab the show from uh, Germany and the Netherlands and Sweden and a lot of Europe, the UK. Um, and I see a few from China, but I really want to make Japan and Australia and China and uh, heavily, hopefully have some way that these countries can contribute as well. Because, you know, we're all one big community and we really should try to focus on that and not on me. And that's, that's really my goal for the podcast. Very cool. Um, is there anything you want to plug? How can people get in touch with you? Uh, you can always find me on the Twitters. I am at Casa de Mora. Uh, if you're on Weibo, you can find me at Casa de Mora there as well. Um, where else? Uh, I have a blog, salmora.com, and you can find my podcast, nsbrief.com, and uh, you can follow the podcast on the Twitters at nsbrief. And uh, you can follow us on the no, – wait, never mind. <laughs> There's probably a bunch of ways. I think if you just Google Saul Mora, I will be the first page of results. So <laughs> you, you, I'm pretty easy to find. It's pretty awesome. Well, it was so awesome having you on the show, Saul. And I want to thank you so much, not just for being on the show, but for everything you do for the community. I think our listeners are really going to enjoy uh, everything you had to say. Oh, hey, thanks a lot. It's uh, it's a lot of fun. And thanks for giving me the chance to uh, to kind of uh, announce my return to uh, to the rest of the world. <laughs> awesome. We're all looking forward. Thank you, Saul. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the May 2016 episode of Consult. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Saul Mora. If you want to give us feedback, please reach out to me on Twitter. I'm at Dave Kopeck. That's D-A-V-E-K-O-P-E-C. Also, if you want to help the show, please leave us a review on iTunes or recommend this episode on Overcast. I look forward to seeing you next month.